Okay, uh, show of hands, um, show of hands. Are you a Mac? Hands up. Are you a PC? Hands up. Both. Who's both? Hands up. Yeah, we actually have a PC now because um, we couldn't afford a Mac for my daughter going to high school. <laughs> so um, uh, now, there, there were great ads. If you've seen, you can YouTube all of them actually. There's about 30 of them. But um, people often think that comparing Christianity to say Buddhism or to Judaism or to Islam is like comparing Macs to PCs. That, that is, there's, they're different, yeah, but they've each got their own benefits, right? But the actual, the, actually, the interesting thing is when you meet Jesus in the Bible, and, and, and I hope that's why you're here. Um, if you've been invited along, uh, you'll probably get a sense of what our church is about. It, it is about um, the intimacy and the fun. We kind of do a little bit of banter even with people up the front. There's a lot of good friendships. We're going to go have food afterwards. There's newcomers dinner coming up. All of those things are true. But ultimately, we're people who want to meet God in the pages of the Bible. And particularly, we open the Bible these few weeks. And if you've been with us the last three weeks, it's been great to have you here. Uh, we want to meet Jesus in the Bible. But when we meet Jesus in the Bible, and if you're here to meet Jesus in the Bible, I want to tell you straight up that He is very different to religion. You might have a view coming here, as most people do, that Christianity is just one of many religions. Max, PCs, around the same. But when you actually meet the Jesus of the Bible, it's very different to religion. And you meet the people in the Bible, like the people we're going to meet in today's uh, account, and when they meet Jesus, you'll see how different it is when people genuinely encounter Jesus and are accepted by Jesus, how different that is to what religion is. Because here's the thing, as Jesus meets people, and this might surprise you, it's actually the religious people who had the most trouble with Him. It's actually the religious people who end up being on the outside. It's the irreligious, the non-religious Right? Those who are morally really suspect, they're the ones that Jesus accepted. The unreligious actually become His friends. Now today, that bit that um, Jeff read out for us, we'll look at that in detail. And uh, what, what you've got there, if you've got a paper outline, it's actually printed out for you on the left side. On the right side, just some points I'm going to uh, talk through. But we're going to see two people who met Jesus about 2,000 years ago. And what you need to know is one of them is religious, very religious. But the other is the polar opposite. And you want to see what happens, don't you? So firstly, let's have a look at this religious guy. Now, um, we, we meet him. His name is Simon, and he's a Pharisee. Now, you need to know what a Pharisee is, because this guy throws a dinner party for Jesus. Um, a Pharisee was the strictest religious people of Jesus' day. But they weren't, um, weren't full-time priests. Okay, they were lay people, as in uh, they had their own jobs, they, 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 a lot of them were married, they had their own families, but they were super religious, ordinary people, if you know what I mean, right? They weren't specially pra- uh, paid, they weren't priests, they didn't work at the temple, but they were so religious and so strict in their religion that um, we know from historical records they would know uh, chunks of the Bible off by heart, all right? I mean, it's hard enough to read the Bible, but they knew it off by heart. They followed God's laws in the Bible, and someone's once calculated 623 laws. I don't know if that's true, but 600 or so. But they, they would follow it as much as they could to the letter. How much to the letter? Well, in the Old Testament Bible, that's the Bible they had. Um, the first kind of two-thirds of the Bibles that, that, we, that you'll have today. It's called the Old Testament. 
um, there was a law about tithing, and tithing essentially means giving 10%, all right? So uh, these Pharisees would be so strict about giving 10% that if they had a herb garden in their backyard and they grew some basil and mint, they would take every 10th leaf and offer it to God. If they played Pokemon Go, they would offer every 10th Pokemon and somehow offer it to the deity of Nintendo. I don't know. Um, But, you know, that's how strict they were. There wasn't just their income they would offer 10%. It was the herbs in their garden. It was anything, you know, fungus in their shoes. I don't know. Anyway, so this guy, Simon the Pharisee, the super ultra-religious guy, he throws a party for Jesus. That's a great thing, isn't it? Right? Jesus is a respected rabbi, or people called him rabbi. He wasn't formally trained, but he had a reputation by then. He throws a party for Jesus. Now, why did he do that? <clears throat> I mean, we don't really know, but it could just be he's curious. Like a lot of people, he had heard about Jesus, and he would have been an upstanding member of the community. He wanted to you know, be the first to greet this rabbi coming into his town, have him in his house. It's a, it's a big honor to do that. Maybe he wanted to find out more about Jesus. Um, or maybe he was, well, some of the Pharisees, they didn't really like Jesus, so this was a way for them to spy on Jesus. Maybe he was one of them, investigating Jesus, keeping an eye out. Is this guy legit or not? Or maybe he was... Maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he really genuinely wanted to know more about Jesus. Um, We don't know at this point. But the thing to note, though, is that religion does welcome Jesus, okay? Like religion welcomes Jesus. No major religion rejects the importance of Jesus. Not Buddhism, not Islam, not even Judaism, not Hinduism. They all will respect Jesus, even though they'll think differently about Jesus. But they all welcome and respect Jesus. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, chances are, even if you have a problem with Christians and church, you probably wouldn't say you had a problem with Jesus, would you? Right? He's a historical guy, as far as you know. Seems like pretty legit. No reason to dislike Jesus, one of the greatest moral teachers of all time. At least that's what most people think. See, even if you're not a Christian, you would probably welcome Jesus. But certainly religion welcomes Jesus. But the thing I want you to know is religion welcomes Jesus, but religion will always welcome Jesus on its own terms. All right? See, this guy, Simon, this Pharisee, you'll notice he keeps a slight distance. So uh, in that bit that we read in uh, the the numbered sentences, uh, 44 to 46, you'll you'll, you'll see there that even though he hosts the party, um, he doesn't go out of his way to honor his most honored guest. It was customary that they would provide, you know, household slaves, slavery was the common back then, to, to wash the feet of the household. He didn't do that, right? He didn't uh, give Jesus, a, you know, a, a wash towel to, to clean him up, uh, to, you know, um, to, to, to freshen, around, freshen him up after a long day, probably out walking around. Um, we don't even see that he gave Jesus necessarily a very warm greeting. So there was a distance that he kept, even though he opened his home and he had Jesus over, it was, yeah, it was sort of checking him out. It was at a distance. Now, we know how to do that too, don't we? Yeah? Even those of us, um, uh, we, we, we know the difference, for example, between those of us, in, we have circles of people in our lives. Yeah, we have friends. We have BFFs. And then we have acquaintances. Yeah, we know the difference. And you, you know the difference between a, a colleague that you only see at work 
versus someone that you've become very close to. I, I think, I, I think that, that some of the differences we notice probably are along four lines. Um, that is, if we really, you want to know the difference between a good friend and acquaintance, it's probably physical, financial, emotional, and social, right, indicators. So this physical, right? A good, good friend, um, I don't know what you guys are like in different, different cultures, but with my good friends, I'll go up, you know, not just a handshake. It might be, you know, one of those man shakes where you kind of, and then you kind of do a man hug, you know what I mean? <laughs> right? You don't want to do like a, yeah, there's, there's the rule about man hugging. So you do that. Um, but with acquaintance, you'll just do a polite handshake. Yeah, there's physical indicators. Um, financially, well, if you're my, you know, if you're a good friend of mine, I'm really quite happy to shell out for you, lend you money. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, open my home to you. I'm not asking questions, you know, shout you dinner, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're an acquaintance, well, yeah, you know, I might buy you a cup of coffee. But, you know what I mean? Like, we, 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 we know the difference. Um, emotional, yeah, emotional is the next one. With friends, you, you connect on an emotional level. You, you're able to be vulnerable. You share with them stuff that you struggle with. With an acquaintance, I'm not going to tell you that much about myself, yeah? And then social as well. If, if, um, if, if someone's a good friend, you kind of mingle with them socially. You invite them to know your friends, right? You, you're not afraid um, of, of exposing your social circles to them. You're not afraid to, 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 to change up who you hang out with because you want them to be, do you know what I mean? Like, whereas someone who's an acquaintance, oh, I don't really want them to meet my strange family. Yeah? Okay, so physical, financial, emotional, social, we do this. We know the difference between, you know, politeness, acquaintance, versus intimacy. And I want you to know that, that this religious guy, Simon, this Pharisee, yes, he invited Jesus over. Yes, he hosted the party. But there was certainly a distance that he kept, physical, financial, emotional, social. Because religion, and here's my point, though it welcomes Jesus, will come on its own terms and will always keep its distance. Religion will want to take some parts, but not other parts. They want to take some parts of Jesus' teaching but won't want to take all of it. And I wonder if that's you today. And by the way, can I just say, it, it doesn't, I don't mean just if you're a religious Buddhist or Hindu, uh, Muslim. You can be religious and come under what we call the Christian umbrella. That is, you can be a religious Catholic. There are lots of religious Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, doesn't matter what denomination, Protestants, okay? Right? My point is, you can be religious, even think, I'm religious under the umbrella of Jesus, but actually you keep Jesus at a distance. Though you welcome Him, you come to Him on your own terms. I don't know if you know that uh, there are some guests, probably most guests that you invite over, if you have a home, and especially if you don't live outside of your parents' home at the moment, you'll know that there are places in your house that they can go and other places they can't go. Even our closest friend, right? We generally don't say, hey, you know, just... Go into our bedroom, have a look around. My underwear hanging around everywhere, but let's go and see. No, there are places they can go, there are places they can't go. Like if you're if you're an Asian background, and I'm allowed to say this because I'm Asian, then you'll know, like your parents' home, yeah. I mean, they still have plastic on their couches and their remote controls. Right? Because you can come to my house, but you know, don't you mess with my couch. I, I don't know what it is. Um, there are things that you can do. There are things you can't do. There are kind of certain protocols. And we all know the kind of basic things. Um, and so I wonder if you're like that with Jesus. Yeah, you, you invite him into your life, but you drop boundaries. 
here's where you can go, Jesus. Oh, no, you can't go there. This is where you can rule over, but you, no, not, not that. Right? Some, some of you here, perhaps even some of the regulars, if you really were honest with yourself, you'll know, well, uh, you're a Sunday Christian. Jesus has got your Sunday afternoons from about 3.45 to 6.30. rest of the time, he's out of your life, you know? Wow, that is so weird. <laughs> that is amazing. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was speaking to, speaking to your phone. It's good. It's good. It's good that technology gets challenged by the Lord. That is a first. Welcome back, Amelia. Um, so I wonder if that's you. I wonder if that's you. Um, how, now, how do you know, though? Because some of you here will be like, okay, like, how do I know? Am I, am I this kind of, like, am I in danger of just being the Sunday Christian? Am I in danger of just welcoming Jesus but not letting Him? Well, you know because the religious get exposed as just being religious as opposed to actually welcoming Jesus when Jesus comes and challenges and rocks religion to its core, which He loves to do. And in this story that we've read, this account, you'll see that about to happen when we meet the second character. Because Simon the Pharisee, this ultra-religious guy who thinks he's doing Jesus a favor, who thinks he's doing okay by Jesus, well, he gets rocked to the core. And his actual stance, how much he actually welcomes Jesus, is exposed when we meet the woman in the story. So I'm going to read again, uh, actually from the beginning. So if you want to follow along, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. Um, Now, this is a bit of a... One of those, you know what a euphemism is. A euphemism is a big word to say. You're kind of trying to, um, to soften the truth. When, when this passage says, this is a woman in a town who lived a sinful life, uh, you only have to read between the lines to know that this was probably the woman in town who was famous for sleeping around. Right? Back then, it was very strict um, sexual morals. Marriage uh, was the only place that you could um, have sex and have sexual activity. And this woman was obviously not one of those who kept to that. And in fact, probably she was, the, she was probably known and probably was a prostitute. Okay? And so this was a very nice way of saying this woman was notorious. She was famous. She was probably even more famous than Jesus in her town. But you see what she's doing though. She comes to Jesus, as the story says, as he's reclining at dinner. Now, you just got to picture this because we eat sitting on chairs around dining tables, okay? But in the Roman days, they would have these long lounges. You've probably seen them in movies and stuff. Um, and they would recline, but they would all recline towards the center. So it'd be one table at the center, and it'd be like um, uh, all these different lounges all around it. You can imagine that. And so they're, 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 they'd be facing the center so they can talk to each other, but their feet would be towards the outside of the circle, if you know what I mean, yeah? And so Jesus is there, along with probably a few other guests, and they're reclining towards the center, and you would have your shoes removed, and your feet would be away from the food, which is a good thing. And then she comes to Jesus, 
and, and houses those days where they weren't very secure, they were open, so she was probably able to walk in pretty unnoticed. But then as soon as she walks in and begins to do what she does, it was going to be very obvious, right? Even if they hadn't noticed her, they would have smelt it straight away because what's she doing? She takes an alabaster jar of perfume. Um, these jars themselves, we'll find out in a moment that they're worth a lot, but the jars themselves are worth a lot. From what we know from, from ancient historical sources, the jars would often be... Um, themselves be made out of precious stones or precious materials and how you would open the jar isn't there's no lid you would actually break the top open and you can imagine the smell just would have wafted through the room so they're there they're chatting they're reclining this woman walks in kind of quietly but then she breaks open the jar and everyone's like and what is she doing she's at Jesus's feet and she's crying and her tears are dripping on to his feet and, she, and, he's, and she's washing his feet, wiping the tears away with her hair and pouring this perfume from this beautiful, expensive alabaster jar all over his feet. And then, most of all, he's sm- she's smothering his feet with kisses. Now, that would have been noticed because that word kiss there, by the way, is not that little peck on the cheek. Not even the... I, I don't know if you saw this week, there was this... Um, controversy because who was it that kissed his, her daughter on the mouth? This photo? Yeah, it was Victoria Beckham. and Which is like, I, I think it's totally innocent, right? And it's fine, obviously, but I don't know why people make a hoo-ha about it. But it's not even that. Because when, when, I, you know, when, when I kiss my kids, and you know, when they were little, especially kiss them on the mouth, it would be like, little peck. The word here for kiss is not that kind of kiss. This is the kind of kiss that parents give their kids after they've been missing in the shopping center. <laughs> the other day we were in Burwood and this poor little kid was standing on the street corner and he's crying. And then there's this, uh, this uni student aged girl trying to help him and um, he, he was just upset. I didn't even know what language he spoke. He was Asian, so I started speaking to him in Chinese. Anyway, he was just saying, mama, 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 finally found a cop. Um, and as the cop was coming to help him, you see his mum walk running up the road. So she had lost him and finally found him. And when she scooped him up, it was, you can imagine the kind of kiss. It's like, mwah, mwah, you know, like, it's that. It, it's the kind of kiss, it's the kind of kiss you give when you, um, you know, say you've been away from Australia, because Australia is the best place in the world, right? And you get off the plane um, and you're just like kissing the tarmac, all right? It's like, I'm home, okay? Um, this is the kind of kiss we're talking about. It's just that kind of, you give everything, Yeah? And no wonder this dinner party, especially the host, was completely scandalized. See verse 39, it says, when the, Pharisees, who, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, as she is a sinner. You totally understand that, right? I mean, she's the town hooch. She comes and puts her lips, her hair, her tears, her perfume all over this supposed man of God. What are we supposed to think? So the whole party is scandalized by her. And as I said before, Jesus loves doing this. And that's when you know how you react to that. Who do you identify with in this story? Would you, would you identify with the Pharisee? Would you, would you get your skin pricked up with, with religiosity and feel like this is unworthy of Jesus? Because how you would know whether you fall into the religious camp 
or those who really know Jesus is how you will react in a similar situation. Because here's the thing though, and this is the twist in the tale, and you know it because we've already read it, but if you had read this for the first time, and if you were one of the Pharisees, one of the religious, you'd be absolutely shocked because at the end of the story, as you know, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. It's the Jewish word shalom, right? Which isn't just absence of war, it's restored relationship. Go in peace means you're okay with me. And if he is a man of God, then you are okay with God. You're one of mine. So that's shocking because he doesn't say that to Simon the Pharisee, does he? So you've got to ask why. Why her? Why does she get accepted? Why does he, the religious guy, not get accepted? Well, as I said before, it's because the religious come to Jesus on their terms. See, the religious guy here, he comes to Jesus with something. He actually has quite a lot. He has a house. He has the resources, probably the friends that he also invited to host a dinner party. Right? He welcomes Jesus to his place. She comes. The sinner comes. Well, she has nothing, right? She's no home to invite him to. She has nothing that he could possibly want. I mean, she knows that her life is broken. She had given her body away to how many men, we don't know. She'd been used, probably abused. She came with nothing except shame and regret and desperation. She comes to Jesus with nothing. I want to hear say that maybe there's a small percentage, but maybe there's some of you here and you identify with that straight away. Because when you look at your life, you are filled with regret and perhaps even shame. I mean, we don't know it, but you know it. Shame and regret over bad decisions you've made, over bad relationships. Maybe you've been used. Maybe you've been abused. Or maybe you've been the user and the abuser. And it's finally caught up with you. And you, when you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. When you look in your soul, you know that you're, you feel unlovable, you feel dirty. And, and, and if there is a God, why would, he, why would He love you? You can't possibly accept yourself. And you, like her, you want to come to Jesus and nothing, with nothing more than for Jesus to accept you and to forgive you like He does for her. And you come with nothing. But if that's you, I've got good news because Jesus can do that to you and for you in the same way that he does for her. Because I want you to notice here, the way that she came to him, again, remember her body language. She's kneeling. Uh, she's touching. She's kissing. She's crying. She's wiping. It's so intimate, isn't it? But it's intimate without being sexual. Right? And, and I think that's the whole, the, the whole furor about Victoria Beckham kissing. Like, you're kissing your child. It, how screwed up is our society when intimacy and sexuality get kind of mixed up so we don't know the difference? You know what I mean? But here, you want to see how intimate she is being with Jesus, but it's not sexual at all. Now, that's ironic because what was her former life like? It was sexual promiscuity. So what does that tell you? It tells you that at that point where she is now approaching Jesus, and Jesus, she's actually realized something really important. She has realized that what she had been craving all along 
wasn't sex, but intimacy. And now that she has found it in Jesus, rather than in the arms of the men that she's been with. Do you see what I mean? Yeah? She's realized that what she's needed all along was the intimacy that she thought she could get by selling and giving her body away. Man after man after man. And this is so important. Because when you read this word sin, or when you see the word sin here, or when you hear the word sin, I don't know what you think, but in the Bible, sin is, is, is much more than just doing bad things. Sin is actually replacing God, right? replacing the irreplaceable God. And so sin is much deeper than what we do with our actions. Right? It's much deeper than the sexual sin that this woman would have committed or the moral failings that you and I fail in. What drives sin is actually a desire to replace God. In other words, we want to fill up a hole in our lives that other things other than God can't possibly fill up but we try to, right? Sin is a desire to fill up that hole with our li- in our lives. And for this woman, and for some here, it may be sex. But you know that what you're actually wanting to fill up is intimacy. And ironically, um, the more sex you have with people, the less intimacy you get. I'm sure she realizes that, realizes that too. But for others, it's not sexual failings. Um, it's, it's lying. It's backstabbing. It's uncontrollable anger. It's violence. It's jealousy. But I want to say any sin is only a symptom of a deeper problem. That we're trying to fill up stuff in our lives. And that's just the symptoms. But these things can't be filled up except by God. So maybe for you, it's what drives you is a need for approval. You want people to think well of you, to respect you. And that drives what you do. That drives your jealousies. That drives your pettiness. That even drives your careerism at the expense of your, your, your loved ones, your family. It could be security. You so much want that life um, would be secure financially, and so you give everything to have those things, that house, the mortgage, and you would give up other things for that because you're trying to fill that hole. It could be identity or self-worth, and you're trying to fill that hole, or, or power or control over your life and circumstances, or enjoyment and pleasure. I don't know what it is for you, all right? But we're trying to fill holes that can't be filled. Because God created them to be God-shaped holes that only He can fill. And so the key with coming to Jesus, like this woman, and the key to coming to Jesus and actually finding acceptance with Him, isn't just coming to Jesus and say, yes, I'm a failure and I've failed morally and you need to deal with that. But it's actually coming to Jesus as this woman has and realizing that our deepest needs are only going to be met in Him. That's why she could come and express such intimacy because she's found it. It's in Jesus, it's in her creator, it's in God who became a man that she can actually find the intimacy that her soul craves. And it's the same for us. Jesus, who claimed to be God in human flesh and who Christians 2,000 years on still believe was God, is God become a man, is the only one who can fill that hole in your life, whatever that hole is. That hole you've been trying to fill with other replacements. You know they don't satisfy. Or if they do, it's not going to last for very long, is it? So you've got to come to Him at the very point where you've been trying to replace Him. And that's going to be different for different people. But see, her life was changed because her deepest needs were met. I wonder if your life 
is needing that sort of change too. And that's why she could come to Jesus with nothing. But find acceptance. But the irony is, the twist is, um, those who come with, to Jesus with nothing are also able to give everything. Did, did you see that? Like um, the broken like her, when you realize you're broken and when you find Jesus, you have nothing to lose anymore. And so you go the whole way. You throw yourself on Jesus, all your love, all your life. Remember I said that acquaintance and friends, you know, there are four, at least four indicators of differences. The physical, yeah, the financial, the emotional, and the social. Look what she does here. Physical. Well, she can't get any closer to Jesus, can she? Yeah? Simon kept a distance. She went all the way physically, intimate without being sexual. Financially, that alabaster jar, I didn't tell you how much that was worth. Let me tell you now how much that was worth. It was worth about a year's wages. Standard laborer's wages. So I don't know what the average now is. Let's just say $50,000. It was a 50 grand jar of perfume. That would have cost her everything. Yeah? Simon the Pharisee put up a dinner party. Maybe if it was a good dinner party, maybe a buffet. Yeah, it cost a few hundred bucks, maybe a couple of thousand maximum. Right? 50 grand. Emotionally costly. Uh, costly. Her tears indicated that. Socially costly. Washing the feet of someone was a slave's work. Okay? Only the lowest of slaves. I mean, there were different grades of household slaves in Roman society. Only the the slaviest of slaves, right, were required to wash people's feet because it was the worst thing. And she does that. She was able to say, I don't care about my social standing, my social circles, my shame. I'm just going to do it. All right, there's no distance at all. So she comes with nothing, but ironically, she gives everything. Now, what, how is that even possible? Like how, how can you imagine someone coming to Jesus with such abandon? Well, there are two reasons. And the first reason is that that story that Jesus tells later on. So let's have a look at that again. It's called a parable, which is a story with a hidden message, right? So uh, verse 41, it's a very short story. Jesus says this. He says to Simon, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, and a denarii is one day's worth of wages about, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon the Pharisee replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. See, why is it that she was able to give everything? Well, Jesus, using this story, very clever story, gives the first reason. Need to know that the difference between the 500, the two debts, one is worth about a year and a half of wages, the other is worth two weeks of wages. So the other debt was still significant. It's like a couple of thousand dollars, yeah? But the big debt was like a hundred thousand dollars. Right? This is the difference between, I was going to say a home loan and a car loan, but that'd be a really cheap home and a really cheap car. But do, do you know what I mean? That's the difference. 100K versus 2K, yeah? Because the more that, Jesus point, the, the point of Jesus' story is this. The more that you know you have nothing to offer Jesus, the more amazing you appreciate His love for you. Because He loves you in spite of. He loves you despite the fact that you have nothing to offer. And, and when you realize that, well, the love just overflows, doesn't it? The more you've been loved, the more you'll be able to love him back. That's Jesus' point. The guy with the bigger debt will appreciate that so much more and say, my life is yours. Now, what kind of sins, I wonder, do you think are unforgivable in our culture? Because um, like I talk about this woman, her sexual promiscuity, and chances are, you know, this is not going to be the thing that our culture grates with, right? 
If you think of the worst kind of sins, and in fact, I think that's why even most people, even if you're unchurched and not a Christian, you probably would feel identifying with this woman. You wouldn't be so scandalized by her. Yeah? Because in our culture, this is, I mean, yeah, you can imagine it'd be a big deal, but it's not quite the same. Because in our culture, I think that the worst sins are things like terrorism, aren't they? Yeah? Mass shootings, we had a few of them. Plowing through a crowd with a truck. Um, or how about domestic abuse? Yeah? And I think one of the worst uh, sins that you would probably find really hard, hard to stomach is if you met someone who was responsible for, and this is happening around the world today, human trafficking. Yeah, don't you think that is one of the worst things you can possibly imagine? If you met someone who was a human trafficker, um, selling people in this modern day where slavery is illegal, but you know, slavery very much exists, and selling people as slaves. You can imagine if that person came and said, I want a relationship with Jesus, 99% of religious people would say, no way, no way in hell. Well, I want to tell you the story of a man called John Newton. Because John Newton in the 18th century was a slave trader. So if you find it hard to think this woman, you know, you, you, can, you can sympathize with her. Well, I'll tell you what, you would not have sympathized with John. He was a slave trader, a human trafficker. He would have got boatloads, kidnapped boatloads of Africans, right? Crammed them like sardines in his slave ships. And he was the captain of one of them at one stage. Shipped them over to England where sometimes 60 to 70% of those would die en route. Men, women, and children. That was him. At the age of 23 though, after living a terribly, terribly horrible, violent trafficking life, he met Jesus in 1748 and he gave up his old life. And it was such a big transformation that he eventually decided that he would give his whole life to serve God by becoming a pastor. He actually became one of the key campaigners for the abolition of slavery. And he was friends with William Wilberforce. He wrote this hymn. Many of you know it. It's the hymn Amazing Grace. This man whose sin, even by modern standards, we would consider unforgivable. He finds Jesus. He meets Jesus. He's accepted by Jesus. And the words of Amazing Grace is, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And when he says wretch, he really means wretch. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. One of his last words were, he was an old man by then. He says, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. You see, when you know that there's no reason why God should love you and forgive you and he does, you hold nothing back. Same with this woman, same with John Newton. Because that second reason is, that was the first reason Jesus' story, the more that you know you have nothing to offer, the more amazing you appreciate His love. The second reason is, she had already been filled, hasn't she? Remember, she came in, like the whole actions indicated that what she needed was intimacy. She sh her encounter with Jesus shows that He's already filled her most deeply and ultimately, her desire for intimacy. He was now accepting her and giving her the intimate relationship that all human beings were created for, an intimacy with relationship with God. And when you've got what truly satisfies, like she does, well, you can give up everything else. You don't need those props anymore. Remember, it's that hole 
we try and fill with all those props, whatever it is, money, sex, careerism, right? Whatever it is. Well, when, when it's been filled, well, you don't need those things anymore. You can give them up. But you see, how, this is how she's different to the religious. Because the religious never go the whole way. Because the religious don't come to Jesus admitting their deepest need and their deepest vulnerability is for Him to fill them. Remember, religion welcomes Jesus, but always at a distance. You always keep Jesus at bay. Keep Jesus in certain pockets of your room, in your house, but not in all the rooms. And so you do need to keep holding on to those parts of your life because you're too afraid of letting it go. Because you've never really experienced how Jesus fills and satisfies. So if you're here and, and you know that's you, that you've never been able to surrender all of your life to Jesus. And for us, there's always one or two things that we find hardest to surrender, whether it's money or career, relationships. Right? Let me suggest to you that's because you've never gone deep into the reasons why you need to hold on to those things. You've never actually looked deeply enough to say, why is it that I keep pursuing failed relationship after relationship, going through boyfriend or girlfriend, one after the other? Or why is it that I can't say no right, to the careerism that I know is killing me and my family? Why is it? Well, it's because you're holding on to them because you're afraid if you let them go, that hole is not going to be satisfied. Well, let me just say, and maybe today God is speaking to you and He's saying it's okay. You can let it go because I'm going to feel that need much more than what you've been trying to fill it with. So my last point, what about Jesus in you? We've met Jesus with the religious. We've met Jesus with the sinner. Well, what about you? What about you? Well, the first thing we want to say, and remember Jesus' story is about debt. So the first thing we want to say is this, we all owe God and we owe Him big. You see, you might read the story um, and think, well, so is Jesus saying that Simon is like the guy, the Pharisee is like the guy who owed Jesus not very much and the woman owed Him a lot. And so there is, you know, like in a sense that, this, that, that the Pharisee didn't need much forgiving, whereas the woman did. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, that the Pharisees and the religious don't owe God large amounts. It's the fact that they don't think they owe God lots, large amounts. You see what I mean? It's a perception thing. Yeah? But the Bible's consistent view is, you know what? We're, we're, it's like the kettle calling the pot black. Right? We're all black. And it's really easy to look sideways when you're looking at sin. It's like, oh, I'm not as bad as, you know, that guy. I'm not as bad as... But, you, like, we're just comparing uh, in the wrong standards. Because the Bible's view is we all owe God and we all owe God big because sin accumulates a debt that no one can ever pay off if God is perfect and holy and sees and knows everything we've ever done and thought. When we replace the irreplaceable God, that is really offensive to God. Now, you might be thinking, well, why should God count sin as a debt that needs to be paid? Isn't that a bit petty? Can't He just forgive? I mean, we do that. I mean, we forgive, right? And somehow God keeps holding sin as a debt. I mean, is He even more petty than me and you? Well, I kind of want to push back on that. And I want to say, if you've ever genuinely forgiven something big against you, right? I don't know, if, if, if someone's really offended you, really hurt you, and you've found it really hard to forgive them, but you've decided, I will forgive them. I'm not talking about, you know, they stepped on your toe, okay? I'm talking about something that's been genuinely hurtful, possibly and probably done by someone who you, you thought you, who loved you, who was close to you. You know, that really hurts. 
if you ever try to forgive them, let me suggest to you that it always costs. Yeah? Because all real offense incurs a debt. You see, when I genuinely forgive you, and I'm not talking about the kind of forgiveness that's, you know, I've forgiven you, but I'll bring it up again and again and again, because that's not really forgiveness, right? When you've done something against me that really has hurt me to my core, there's two options I've got. I either make you pay for it, and I can make you pay for it in different ways. If it's not financial, I'll make you pay for it because I'll, I'll ignore you. I'll treat you badly. I'll remind you again every time I'm with you. Or if I genuinely forgive you and let it go, then who's going to pay for it? I do. Do you see what I mean? All genuine forgiveness is a cost because all breaches of relationship incurs a debt. Either you've got to pay the debt or the person who's forgiven you has got to absorb that debt. It's got to hurt them. Now, the Bible's view is that we all have a debt that we owe God because of the way we've tried to replace Him and we all need forgiveness. And the quicker and more honestly that we come to terms with that, the better. See, the difference between the sinner and the religious is that the sinners really see that clearly. The religious think they're okay when they're not actually okay. And the next thing to know is that you, remember, she comes to Jesus with nothing. So don't think that you come to Jesus with anything that you have in order to pay off the debt, that you can make the payment yourself, because that would also be the path of religion. See, maybe this Pharisee, maybe Simon thought he could get into Jesus' good books by doing this party. Honor the big guest. You know, if Jesus really turns out to be the prophet or the son of God, then, you know, he'll get a, he'll get a good way in. But Jesus is so different to religion. Remember what I said at the beginning. When you actually meet Jesus, he's so different to religion because religion is all about do. Jesus is about done. Religion is, all, it doesn't matter what religion you're talking about. One thing they have in common is, what do you got to do to earn God's favor, whatever your God is? What have you got to do to make paradise or nirvana or whatever your equivalent is? All religions are like that, right? It's like a treadmill that you've got to get to. Jesus says, no, I've done it all for you. Because Jesus is all about letting Him love you, letting Him do all the work, letting Him pay your debt for you, letting Him meet your deepest need. How does Jesus pay the debt? How does He absorb the debt that allows Him to forgive you if we all owe Him? Well, the answer, as most of you know, is because He died. So it's really interesting in, in, in the account that we read uh, by this author called Luke. The next time that Jesus is kissed in the account that Luke writes, it's at His betrayal. The night before He died, Judas, his best, one of His best friends, betray Him. The next time Jesus is anointed, right, with oil, is at His burial after He dies. See, Jesus pays the ultimate price to pay off our debt. He goes to the cross for you and me so that God can forgive us, so that God can absorb the cost that our sins have incurred. And Jesus goes without those very things that He offers us, intimacy, approval, security on the cross, love, identity. He gives them all up so that we might have. And so anything costly that He now asks us to bear, whether it's physical or financial or emotional or social, it's because He already bore it to a degree that we'll never have to bear. One of the best things about being a parent is when they're little and you're snuggling up with them in bed 
and uh, when they're little and you kind of um, have those kind of really intimate moments with, with your kid and they say, Daddy, Mommy, how much do you love me? You know, and you can play around with them. Mommy, do you love me this much? No, no. Do you love me this much? And they, they stretch out their little hands. Do you love me this much? Yeah? I wonder what it would be like if we asked Jesus that question. Jesus, how much do you love me? How would he answer? I'll tell you how he would answer. Jesus, do you love me this much? Jesus, do you love me this much? Well, how much do you love me, Jesus? Jesus would say this much. He stretches his arms out and he dies on the cross for you and for me. I'm going to get the band up. As they play in the background, we're going to start thinking about what it means to respond to a love like this. See, at the end of the day, Christianity at its core is not a religion. That's the weird thing. You may have heard your Christian friends say this, you've been invited along. You know, I thought Christianity was just another religion. Well, the, the reason why, I mean, we can quibble over semantics, but the reason why we often say Christianity is not a religion is because it's so different to religion. It's not coming about to a set of rules, moralities, or even just a set of beliefs. It's actually about coming to a person. It's about being loved by Jesus, and it's about loving Jesus in return. And that is so different to religion, isn't it? See, Christians believe that Jesus is alive, and, it's, and we actually have a relationship with Him. You can't say the same about the founders of all the other religions. You don't have a relationship with Muhammad. You don't have a relationship with Buddha. You don't have a relationship with Moses. But Jesus, you do. Remember the key? Jesus says, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. If you've been loved much, uh, you've been forgiven much, you can love Him much. And so if today you realize I come to Jesus and I need to come to Jesus because I have a need to be forgiven. I have a debt that I know that only He can cancel. I want Him to fill that hole in my life. If you're willing to come to Him with that kind of vulnerability, like the, like the, the, the woman in Jesus in this story did, then I guarantee you, you will experience His love for you and that love and relationship with Him will just naturally flow out. I don't know why you've come. I don't know who invited you. So good to see so many guests here. Some of you have come back week after week. And it may be that this week is the week that you need to know. And you know that God has been speaking to you. How do you know that? There's a heaviness on your heart. Now I've experienced it. Many, probably all the Christians here have experienced it. When you know God wants to do business with you, there's this heaviness on your heart that you can't quite explain. Uh, you know that something is going on. You know that your life needs changing. Now today, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. It may not be for all of you. Some of you from today will still be saying, yeah, this is good, but I, I want to find out more and that's fine. But there may be, probably are, some of you here and you know today is the day I need to do business with Jesus. I need to come to Him, receive His love and begin relationship with Him on His terms. Now I've got a prayer at the bottom of those paper um, uh, bulletins that you got and this is the kind of prayer that you that will just need to pray if you know it's, this prayer itself is not you know special or magical but it's the kind of words you need to say to Jesus if you want to today do business with him have him in your life begin relationship with him and what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to pray it and I'm going to pray it slowly and between each line I'll pause so that you can echo it in your head now you won't have to pray it out loud 
But if you are ready to pray this, and if God is putting that heaviness on your heart, then can I suggest to you that today is the day. Don't wait. It says this. We're not praying it yet, but look what it says. It says, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I come to you with nothing except my brokenness. Please forgive me. Thank you that you love me and died in my place for all my sins. I want to love you and follow you all my life. Please help me to do that. Okay, it's pretty simple. I'm going to ask everyone, if, if that's okay, whether you've um, prayed this before or ready to pray it or not, it doesn't matter. If Everyone can just keep your eyes closed, bow your heads. We're going to dim the lights a little so that we're not looking around. Because if you do want to pray it, I don't want you to feel self-conscious. If you do want to pray it, I'm going to pray it slowly. Just echo it in your head, line after line, to God. And He'll hear you. And you can begin relationship with Him now. So if you do want to pray with me, let's do that. Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I come to you with nothing except my brokenness. Please forgive me. Thank you that you love me and died in my place for all my sins. I want to love you and follow you all my life. Please help me do that. Amen. You can look up now. Um, I just want to say, if you did pray that, um, whether it's, especially if it's today for the first, meet, first time meaningfully, and you know that was a big step for you, can I just say, it's really great because you walked in here today and no matter where you were at, you, you were not like this woman you weren't going to go with Jesus saying, go in peace, you're okay with me. But you're going to walk out today with Jesus having said to you, you've begun a relationship with me, go in peace. And that's great news. Um, you've become a Christian. That's what it means, right? That's pretty simple, hey? You don't have to like, you know, do anything really special. You've become a Christian just by doing this. Um, and you're a new Christian. And new Christians, well, like any new thing, you need help. And we've worked out a system and a way of helping you. Um, after we sing our last song, uh, Hong is going to come up and explain how we're going to um, get help to the people who really need to, either because they prayed this or they want to find out more, right? And we'll do that in a moment. But if you have prayed this and for you it was a significant first time, can I just say welcome? Right? Welcome home. Welcome to Jesus. Welcome to life with Him. I'm so glad that you've encountered Him and you know now that you've been accepted by Him. We're going to stand. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to sing the very song that that slave trader I talked about, John Newton, he wrote after he met Jesus and was accepted by Jesus. Why don't we sing Amazing Grace?